What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, it's Jobs Friday. A big jobs report, but a small, really small jobs number. A mere 235,000 jobs added in August. But it may not be as bad as it seems. Former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman. Delta is having about 3% as much impact on the economy as the first wave of the virus did. A team of economists break down America's hiring landscape. COVID variants still weighing on the economy and on our health. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I think that there's a perception that we're sort of through this Delta wave here in the Northeast. I don't think that that was the true Delta wave. I think that that was a Delta warning. I think our true Delta wave is going to start to build after Labor Day here in the Northeast. Those stories plus Kathy Wood makes a call on electric vehicles and chips in short supply. This is the other chip. But for some reason, every time I read it, I'm thinking of what I'm really worried about. And that is, you know. If any of the toes are in short supply uh, as football season starts. Cheetos, started, Doritos. That- okay, Homer. It's Friday, September 3rd, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cure, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is off today. It's Friday. It is indeed Friday, but not just any Friday. It's Jobs Friday, the first Friday of the month, a.k.a. the day the Labor Department reveals how many jobs were added to the U.S. economy the month before. But that's not all. This particular jobs report, the one for August, was critical for the Federal Reserve. They're trying to decide when to taper the bond purchases they started last year to bolster a U.S. economy rocked by COVID-19. So, the big jobs number? Increase a minuscule 235,000. Not so big a number. In fact, economists were expecting, or in hindsight, it kind of seems like they were hoping, for at least 720,000 jobs added. This 235 number is the lowest level of growth since January of 2020. Here's our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Let me tell you where we didn't have jobs. Goose egg, a big goose egg on leisure and hospitality. That was what we uh, had pointed out earlier this week was the place that may have seen the Delta variant effect. Um, We had uh, uh, retail minus 28,500. Another big disappointment, transportation up 53, but that was not, uh, that has been stronger in the past. The big miss on the, one of the parts of the big miss on the part of the private sector uh, uh, forecasters was the expectation there'd be a huge influx of workers in the education area. The private sector education did add 40,000, but when I look at, I'm going to double check this number here again, the uh, local education, it was, it was, um, uh, minus 5.7 on local and minus 20 on state. 
I have read reports, Becky, expecting 200 plus thousand on the education. So there might be a little bit of a mismatch. That would make this miss not that bad uh, because there is some expectation that we'll be hiring. It doesn't appear to have been caught up or maybe it was uh, papered over by the seasonal adjustments. So I I don't think it's wrong to think that the miss is not as bad as you see as it seems from the headline. But it's still a miss. It still suggests we had, I think, clearly a Delta variant effect. Neela Richardson, chief economist at payroll and HR company ADP, explained why. It's not that there isn't hiring demand out there, but there are still these lingering issues of COVID concerns and the lack of full-time affordable childcare. Never have I spoken about childcare and jobs market so much together because they are so critically important. And right now we're dealing with the bus driver shortage, another aspect of the whole scenario of getting kids back to school, which is critical for working families. So you're really seeing this timing mismatch COVID fears, and the fact that there is a deceleration in economic growth going on in the second half of the year. These are all conflating. So originally, as I said, economists were looking at this number closely because the Federal Reserve was going to be looking at it closely. Have we recovered enough for the Fed to pull back on its efforts to buoy the U.S. economy? Here's Steve Leisman again. I think that the Fed is going to pass on uh, taper, announcing a taper this, this month. So time will tell. The unemployment rate ticked down two-tenths of a percent progress, but not nearly as much as we'd all expected. Here's Jason Furman, chief economist and cabinet member for President Obama. I think there's no question that the Delta virus is taking a toll on the economy. What's interesting is how much tinier that toll on the economy is than the toll it's actually taking on health. We're headed pretty rapidly to daily death toll from Delta that exceeds the death toll that we had in April from the first wave. But then you look at these numbers, Delta maybe subtracted, I don't know, 600,000 jobs that we would have had absent Delta that we didn't have. Last time around, we lost 20 million jobs. Delta's having about 3% as much impact on the economy as the first wave of the virus did. People are, um, labor markets are still pretty tight. Um, There's more than 10 million job openings. Job openings keep rising. One of the big data points this month was wages, up 0.6%. That is a tight labor market with a lot more openings than unemployed. And that also means we're poised to add a lot of jobs in the coming months as people either get over their fears of Delta, the Delta virus starts to fall, or you know, time starts to, starts to fix all of this. This is not the blockbuster progress we saw in July, but the economy is still moving you know, in the right direction. As Jason said, employers are still looking to hire. Becky spoke with Katie George, McKinsey's economist. We are really seeing a new war for talent. Um, employers are working very hard to attract uh, new workforce uh, additions um, and really changing the way they think about uh, their employee value propositions. What, what does that mean? They, they, they really have to, to pay up, offer more benefits, compete with other companies to get that same uh, group of workers? All of that, but um, what we see is the front runners are really playing a long game. And what I mean by that is really investing in workforce training and skill development. And, and, and long term, meaning that these are employees, they don't want to have turnover. They want to make sure that they are hiring and keeping these people around for years to come. 
Exactly. I think we're seeing uh, more and more a sense that um, uh, the kind of attrition we've seen right now is really unhealthy and yeah. that uh, people are trying to create jobs that are jobs today, but careers for the long term. So it's creating a problem for employers right now. I mean, you hear statistics, something like 70 percent of people want a new job this year and employers are worried because that's actually having an impact right now. Absolutely, because, um, you know, obviously uh, losing employees who are uh, loyal and who have the skills that are required uh, means that there's a lot of work to be done to uh, attract new talent and to upskill it. And here's Julia Pollack, ZipRecruiter's labor economist. Job postings, online active job postings by our count across the United States, rose 13% between July and August. That's a really substantial increase. Uh, so employers are still looking to, to hire new workers, and they are not laying off workers uh, in response to the small sort of downturns in activity that we are seeing in some sectors. Uh, they know from that previous experience how hard it is to get workers you lay off back. Uh, and so many are, are hanging on to talent uh, as much as they can. Next on Squawk Pod, breaking down COVID's variants and their risks for kids with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a former commissioner of the FDA. All the case growth that we're seeing in states in the South, or most of it right now, is happening in the schools, unfortunately, among younger children um, as the schools become sources of secondary spread. Anticipating the next wave right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod today with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Here's Becky. COVID cases are rising, but Americans are still planning to hit the road this Labor Day weekend. Reservations for the long weekend are up 46 percent from 2019 before the pandemic. That's according to the short-term rental property management platform Guesty. Joining us right now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And he's a new book that's out this month. It's called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. And uh, Scott, I kid you not, in the last 20 minutes, I received an email invitation to a birthday party out in the Hamptons this weekend for someone I've never met with dancing from five to nine and all kinds of other things going on. I, I take it that's a bad idea. Yeah, well, look, I think we need to recognize that this Delta wave that we're experiencing in the United States is really happening against the backdrop of relatively normal behavior. I think people are taking some precautions in their personal lives and scaling back a little bit. But by and large, things are open. People are going out. 
Um, the epidemic has clearly peaked in the South. It peaked weeks ago in the South. It's now very apparent in the data. All the case growth that we're seeing in states in the South, or most of it right now, is happening in the schools, unfortunately, among younger children, um, as the schools become sources of secondary spread. But cases in adults are declining. Even hospitalizations are declining in states like Florida. So it's, the situation's improving. I think that there's a perception that we're sort of through this Delta wave here in the Northeast because we've seen Delta cases go up and we've seen them come down in places like the New York metropolitan region. We're also seeing positivity come down. I don't think that that was the true Delta wave. I think that that was a Delta warning. I think our true Delta wave is going to start to build after Labor Day here in the Northeast and the northern part of the country. This is going to be a highly regionalized epidemic. And so I do think that Labor Day and the return to school are going to be incubators for spread that's going to lead to that Delta wave. Now, whether we see a, a wave of infection as dense and severe as the South, I don't think that's going to be the case because we have a lot more vaccination. We've had a lot of prior infection which we also know is protective. But we will probably see a build in cases here in the Northeast. I don't think that we're done with this. I hope we are. But I don't think that we can conclude that just because the cases are coming down from the mini surge that we saw over the summer. If it's tied to the schools, and obviously we're sending our kids back to schools, um, obviously nobody under age 12 can get vaccinated. What are we supposed to do about it? Just watch and wait? Look, I think that this is good. this is very uh, contagious in the school setting. We're seeing that now in the South, and we've seen situations where so- schools became sources of community transmission. That's what happened in the springtime with 1351 in Michigan, when Michigan had a very dense epidemic and so did Massachusetts. It was because they put their kids back in school really for the first time right in the setting of that wave of uh, infection, that, 13, that, that um, B117, excuse me, infection, and the schools became a source of community transmission for that variant. The risk is the same thing happens with this Delta variant. So I think the schools need to go into the year with, um, with in mind that they have to implement mitigation that's going to hopefully control spread, masks, use of keeping kids in defined social pods, improve ventilation. I think schools should be making much more use of testing. We've seen a lot of studies right now that if you do routine testing in the schools once a week and preferably twice a week, you're going to pick up uh, infection before it becomes dense epidemics in that school setting. So there's things that schools can be doing, but the schools are a risk factor for spread within the schools and also becoming sources of community transmission. You know, I haven't let my kids play sports until the spring. They didn't get to do anything this time last year, and I want to let them play sports again this year. Am I, am I wrong? No, look, my kids are back in extracurricular activities as well, playing sports. I think activities done outside are lower risk than activities done indoors. And I don't think we can keep our kids hermetically sealed for two years in a row. And so yeah. we're going to have to take more risk for the sake of allowing children to get back to some semblance of normalcy. But, you know, I think, again, you need to think of risk as something that's cumulative over the course of the day. It's not necessarily binary, even if risk may be binary in terms of when you come into contact with a virus and when you contract it, it's going to be in an isolated setting. But if you do certain things that you know are going to introduce a child to more potential risk, think of things maybe you can withdraw to lower the cumulative risk over the course of the day. So, you know, we're prioritizing, obviously, getting children back into school. That's number one, keeping them safe in that setting, trying to reintroduce extracurricular activities that are important to them. But do you need to go to an indoor birthday party? Um, Things like that, things that are sort of um, discretionary, but higher risk. Those might be the things you want to think twice about if you know you're introducing a child into settings that are going to have some risk because it's very important to them, like sports, like school. Scott, we hear all of these breakthrough cases um, for people who are fully vaccinated. Um, 
maybe they didn't take every precaution to mask up every time they were inside. But if you see these breakthrough cases and now we hear about this new variant, Mu variant, I mean, what does this mean for life going forward? Is there a point where we actually are going to be able to go back to normal or are these new variants going to pop up all the time and continue to uh, to hinder things? I think we're going to go back to normal after this Delta wave. Hopefully this is the last real wave of infection that we're going to experience. But it's going to be a new normal because this is going to become an endemic virus. It's going to circulate every year. It's probably going to be a winter pathogen, as coronaviruses are, after we get enough immunity in the population. And it's going to continue to drift. We'll need to reformulate our vaccines from time to time. People will need to get revaccinated. People who've been infected and are relying on the immunity from prior infection probably will need to get vaccinated at some point. They're not going to have lifelong immunity from a prior infection. So this is going to become like a second circulating flu. And the challenge is we already have a flu. And if you have this circulating alongside flu, I think the cumulative productivity impact to society, to businesses, is going to be too great for us to return to life as we knew it. We're going to have to implement more precautions in congregate settings. So that means trying to get people vaccinated at work. It means improving air filtration and handling in indoor settings. We've greened buildings. Now we're going to have to blue them because, you know, we sort of hermetically sealed buildings to make them more energy efficient. But that might have mitigated against the kinds of precautions we need to try to reduce uh, spread of a respiratory pathogen. So making things people more green made us more dangerous? Potentially, because we've sealed buildings very tight. We need to improve uh, air handling systems. People are going to have to be encouraged to stay at home if they're sick or have a sick contact. Braving out a cold at, um, in the middle of winter is going to be frowned upon. So we should shame people who come into more work access sick? to point of care testing. Exactly. We're going to have to make more access to, you know, home diagnostics, which the FDA is doing. So we're going to change our behavior because if we have this circulating alongside flu, given the productivity impact that flu has each year, we're not going to be able to tolerate that as a society, both from a financial standpoint, but also a public health standpoint. So we're going to have to be do things a little differently. That doesn't mean life is going to be a whole lot different. We're just going to have to change certain practices in the wintertime and the fall when this is going to circulate. Okay, back to the question that has become my obsession as a parent. When can I get my kids who are under age 12 vaccinated? Because you hear all the time, we have all of these great vaccines. Don't worry, you can take the vaccine, you can protect yourself. But I can't protect two of the people I love the most. When does that change? Yeah, so uh, as you know, I'm on the board of Pfizer, so I'm more familiar with the timeline for that vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine for children age 5 to 11 is basically the same vaccine that's made available for adults, but in a smaller dose. So it's one third the dose, 10 micrograms. Pfizer's going to have data on that vaccine in September, and they plan to file for authorization or approval at some point in October. And then it's a question of how long the FDA takes. I think typically the FDA has taken about six weeks to review these applications, maybe two months. But I think in this case, there's at least a chance the FDA is going to want a longer-term median follow-up on the patients, on the children in that clinical trial. So that could push it out a little bit longer. So I think you're looking at a best-case scenario, maybe an authorization or an approval early in the winter time, and maybe it gets pushed out a little bit longer, depending on how much follow-up the FDA wants thought, with respect to the kids in that trial. I thought best case was trial. October, was a Halloween. Is that not the case anymore? That that's when it's going to be filed with the with the FDA. So the data is going to be available in September, but the application is probably going to be filed by the manufacturer, in this case Pfizer, some point in October, give or take a week. So once it gets filed, assuming the FDA takes at least six weeks to review that application, that sort of puts you in an early December time frame. If the FDA takes longer or wants longer term follow up, it gets pushed out a little bit more. So we're talking going through the holidays, potentially, and having this come back again. I think we're talking about getting through this Delta wave. So I I don't think you're going to have a vaccine available for children that's authorized 
in this Delta wave, because I think this is going to play out over the next two months. Um, we're going to see a wave of infection course through the northeast. It's already coursed its way through the south. My, my presumption is that after we get through this Delta wave, prevalence levels start to decline. So you're getting to low, lower prevalence levels across the whole country. Not what we saw in July, where it was two cases per 100,000 people per day, but maybe 20 cases per 100,000 people per day, which is probably what New York is at right now. So you can live relatively normal against that backdrop with just some added precautions. So I think after this Delta wave, we're going to get down to those prevalence levels and it'll probably be persistent through the winter. So you know, assuming nothing untoward happens, we don't have a new variant course this way through the population, overall risk should decline after we get through this Delta surge of infection. Scott, thank you, as always. Thanks a lot. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, it's electric. Tech investor Kathy Wood says it's over for gas-powered vehicles. They're out being abandoned in favor of EVs. But CNBC's Phil LeBeau says all cars are in high demand. Half the vehicles, half the vehicles in showrooms right now are out the door within 10 days. That is a record high. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Our next story is about Kathy Wood. Just to refresh your memory, Kathy Wood is a Wall Street legend, pretty much. The business world gushes over her every move in her portfolio. Some have even ventured to say she's the best stock picker ever. Reddit traders love her too. They have dubbed her Queen Kathy, Aunt Kathy, Kathy Bay. Her ARK Innovation ETF did nine times better than the S&P and 25 times better than the Dow in 2020. 25 times. She's famous for her results, obviously, but also for her big bets on innovation, Bitcoin, for example, and, extraordinarily relevant to today's conversation, Tesla. Here's Becky. GM and Ford are idling more plants as the global chip shortage takes a toll. But Kathy Wood says there's something more to this story. Philip Bowe joins us right now to follow up on a tweet that had the auto world and investors buzzing. Phil. Hi, Becky. Did you see this tweet? It came out late Wednesday night, very early Thursday morning. And this is what Kathy Wood had to say. And it had to do with auto sales that came out on Wednesday and the pace of sales of those auto sales down to 13.1 million units. She tweeted, auto sales in the U.S. have dropped nearly 30 percent from 18.5 million at an annual rate in February to 13.1 million in August. While the auto manufacturers are blaming chip shortages, which are real, I believe that auto buyers are abandoning gas-powered vehicles in favor of electric. So we decided to check. What are the numbers in terms of EV sales? And we're talking about pure EV sales here. We're not talking about plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. A quarter of a million have been sold, and that was uh, year-to-date, up 150%. 
and that's 2.6% of the market. Where is the market going to be through 2025? If it's 2.6% right now, the expectation is that EV sales will gradually ramp up to a little over a million in 2025, which would be between 6 and 8% of the total market. So the word abandon is what I'm hearing from a lot of people. They're saying, well, if people are abandoning, they'd be moving towards EVs much quicker. Keep in mind, some of this, or a large part of this, has to do with the supply of vehicles. Tesla is the largest EV automaker in the world and here in this country. It has a gigafactory that will increase its supply. That's scheduled to open a little bit later on this year, so they'll have the plant in Fremont, California, as well as the gigafactory. That'll ramp up production starting next year and then over the next couple of years. And then when you're taking a look at General Motors and Ford, they've got a couple of big reveals that are going to be coming out a couple of big vehicles launching, I should say, coming up. You've got the Hummer electric SUT because it is technically a truck that is going to be coming out later this year from General Motors. And then you've got Ford with the F-150 Lightning. Those deliveries start early next year. And that's part of the increase in supply that will be adding to the market and allowing people to buy more electric vehicles. But we wanted to run those numbers, guys, because a lot of people have said to me, are people abandoning gas-powered vehicles for electric vehicles, or is this the gradual transition that most expected? I would say it falls more towards the gradual and steady transition that most are forecasting. Hey, Phil, I mean, her thesis would make sense if there were cars and trucks that were sitting on lots that couldn't be sold. But the report you brought us yesterday is that those cars and trucks are sitting on the lot for, what was it, like eight, ten days, and, and then they're out the door? Sure. Half the vehicles, half the vehicles in showrooms right now are out the door within ten days. That is a record high. And that basically means, Becky, that when you and I have gone out to look for a vehicle, they've said to us, look, we don't have what you're looking for right now. You want to place an order? It may be ready in six months, eight months. Whenever it's ready, we'll call you. You come in, you do the paperwork, and it leaves. It's, not, like it's it not a case of you yeah, and that, I going out and saying, hey, that's over there. That seems like it explains much more. Anyway, Phil, thank you. Great to see you. You bet. Broadcom uh, earnings and revenue beating the street. The company is offering upbeat guidance on the current quarter, uh, pointing to strong demand for its chips because of the adoption of 5G technology. And, Becky, every time I read this, uh, in, did you see the Mondelez story? Uh, there's a gl- there is a global chip shortage. Of snacks. Are you talking, yeah, potato chips? Ahoy. <laughs> chips Ahoy, um, Ritz crackers. Um, that's a big story in the journal today from Mondelez. This is the other chip. But for some reason, every time I read it, I'm thinking of what I'm really worried about. And that is, you know, if any of the toes are in short supply uh, as football season Cheetos, started, Doritos. That, okay, Homer. Name them. Name one. Name one you don't like. Tostitos. Name one you don't like. Can you? Fritos. Can you? You mm-hmm. can't. No, uh, you know, Fritos not my favorite, but it's a little too salty. What about barbecue Frito, chili flavored Fritos? Nah, I don't like those so much. Turkey tofu, uh, shrimp chili. Remember? Bubba Gump. uh, Yeah, Bubba Gump. And the the global uh, chip shortage is getting worse, but we're talking chips. Uh, Forcing GM and Ford to temporarily close uh, factories. GM said it's going to pause production of the company's top-selling Silverado pickup. Ford says it will stop making pickups at its uh, Kansas City plant for the next two weeks. Uh, The cuts compound an already short supply of trucks, cars, and SUVs on dealers' lots across the country. Someone wrote in to me, what happens if the power's out and you need to evacuate a hurricane area and you got an EV, Becky? That's a really good question. I I guess you take your other car. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. That you had that you that you abandoned apparently. Right. Yeah, I thought she. You know, in the past she said things like you're going to abandon gas-powered cars for flying EVs in 2022, and that's why sometimes uh, you know you might raise an eyebrow a little with with yeah. some of Kathy's. Uh, uh, just, I mean. It, it, it's not the case. You can't find most cars on the lots, and it's because right. they haven't been produced. So attributed to yeah. that, I think, is, like I said, you know, she's got, a, you know, she's got skin in the game, so that's her thing. It's but just I, looking at things with blinders. If you don't look at other data points, you can't point to one data why, point and say right. this means it's that. It's not why it's happening. Yeah. It, 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 and I have thought, uh, I've got a new car coming. took a year and a half to get it. Can you hear me, Portia? Anyway, uh, <laughs> and I, th- I actually thought... It almost took so long that I almost thought maybe I should be buying that uh, Taycan. So I've really? thought about it. Yeah, right. I've thought about it. They're really cool looking. They're very cool looking. Well, they got go. a nice back seat. My kids are growing up. But uh, I don't know. I didn't. Gave so I have, not ab- I have not abandoned. That's the show for today and for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes of our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, or if you have a few suggestions for us, send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here on Tuesday. Have a great long weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.